Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our series with Dr. Newfeld called Celebrating the Word of God. In this message, we'll address the critical issue of how the Bible came together in answering the question, why these 66 books? There's a lot of misinformation about the Bible. I was recently privy to a conversation between a Christian man and a somewhat hostile critic of the Christian faith. The critic said, I've done my research. There are more stories about Jesus than your four Gospels. There's the Gospel of Judas, for instance, that contradicts everything you believe, and that Gospel is just as valid as the ones you believe in. That conversation reminded me of one I had myself. You know, in my case, the man was elderly in his 80s. He told me he used to go to a Baptist church, but he didn't believe anymore. I asked him why, and he told me, did you know that Jesus was married? I said, tell me why you think that. And he answered very much in the same way. I've done my research, he said. You know, behind that statement is the underlying belief that something deceitful was going on when they, whoever they were, put the Bible together. You know, those of you who've read the Da Vinci Code, for instance, and have believed it, now think that the real Jesus must have been decidedly different than the one you find in Scripture. And perhaps that's just the beginning. Who decided that these 66 books should make up the Bible? Were those the only books written? I think not. How come some didn't make it in? You know, behind those statements is the idea that those who put the Bible together were those who were in power and who had the ability to enforce their view of Scripture. And so from that view has come the idea that the Bible is not a sacred book at all. It's just the triumph of a dominant group of people enforcing their views on others. What's fascinating to me is that this kind of talk sometimes results in a sense of unease among Christians. Now, if we can, for just a moment, step back from the rhetoric and ask the question, how did we get the Bible that we did? Let's see if we can get at that question. First, theologians have often used the word canon to describe those books that belong to our Bible. The word canon doesn't actually mean something with a long barrel and that goes boom. Rather, it comes from a Greek word which refers to a measuring rod or a standard measurement. The idea of a standard measure is the idea that one has an objective measurement of things. Which books are the standard or the objective declaration of God's truth? That's the question. You know, what's often surprising to people is that the development of the Bible was actually not a process in which a group of high-powered men sat around a table and made decisions. Nothing could be further from the truth. So let's start from the beginning. We know from a number of dating sources that Israel left Egypt in the year 1446 BC, and from there they went down the Sinai Peninsula and came to Mount Sinai, where among other things they received the Ten Commandments. According to Exodus 31 verse 18, these Ten Commandments were originally written in the finger of God, and these commandments were the first written document that formed the beginning of the canon of Scripture. According to Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 to 26, Moses wrote further words, that is, the Old Testament law, and deposited this writing in the Ark of the Covenant. The reason Moses was accepted as a spokesman of God is because God had demonstrated that Moses was his leader time and again. 
God called him at the burning bush, gave him the authority to rain down plagues over Egypt, called him to put his staff over the Red Sea and it parted, called him up on Mount Sinai and demonstrated in the issue of the rebellion of Korah that Moses was appointed by God to speak on his behalf. Now, go with me to Joshua 1 verse 8. Now, before I read that passage, let me set it in context. Moses has just died, and with his death, Joshua is appointed to lead Israel out of the promised land. But before Joshua leads Israel forward, God speaks to him. Now we're ready for verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." Now, it seems clear that by the time of the death of Moses, the writings of Moses, that is, the first five books of our Bible, were already regarded as sacred scripture. Furthermore, Joshua was called to meditate on it. That would mean that he was to learn it well and know how to incorporate its teachings into his own life and into the leadership that he would give the people of Israel in the days ahead. What I'm saying is that no committee had been formed to accept Mosaic literature into the canon because these words came from the man who was known to have been a true spokesman of God, his words were regarded by the entire community as having come from the mouth of God. And that would mean that the formation of the canon happened more organically than we have been led to believe. The writings of Moses were recognized to be what they are, the word of God. A group of powerful men in a smoke-filled back room didn't decide that. It was plain to the people who originally heard the words from Moses. Now, before we move on, let me address the issues that sometimes get raised. Are the first five books of the Bible genuinely from the hand of Moses? Now, those who know the nature of this debate will, in the end, complain that I don't go into this matter in enough detail, and those who don't know about it might wonder why I'm speaking about this at all. So let me give the shortest recap I can into this debate. Throughout history, from the time of the writing of the first five books of our Bible until the very recent present, it was never doubted that these books came from Moses. The books make the claim to be written by Moses on numerous occasions. Later Old Testament authors also make this claim. Jesus believed it and said so, and you might find that in Mark 7 verse 10 and Luke 20 verse 37. Paul thought so too, and in Romans 10.5, he says that the New Testament assumes it. Then at the end of the 19th century, before the advent of modern archaeology, a group of unbelieving Bible scholars produced a theory of the first five books of our Bible in which they taught that these books were actually the product of numerous authors who edited them and re-edited them over and over again. Please remember, these scholars had no archaeological evidence for this, Neither did they have any other empirical evidence. Furthermore, archaeological finds in our day have only supported that the books were written by Moses. So I think it's safe to say that an unbiased look at the first five books of our Bible give all the evidence in the world that they were indeed written by Moses and that shortly after his death, these five books were stored in the ark and were honored as sacred scripture from the very beginning. But what about the rest of the Bible? Well, the next book that was written was Joshua, and according to Joshua 24, verse 26, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Now, the reason why the book of Joshua was kept is because Israel recognized that it, 
just like that which was written by Moses, was written by a man who was a recognized spokesman of God. Now, of course, not all of the Old Testament books occur exactly like that, but consider this. Those who fulfilled the office of prophet were also widely recognized as true prophets. 1 Samuel 10.25 said that it was Samuel who told the people the rights and the duties of kingship and that he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Or in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 29 says, The acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Furthermore, many of the books in the Old Testament actually bear the name of the prophet who wrote them. In other words, the books included in our Old Testament come from recognized spokesmen of God who were known to be spokesmen of God. Now, I'm leading to a point. By the time of Jesus, the 39 books that make up our Old Testament was not in dispute at all. With all the conflict that existed between Jesus and the Pharisees and the other religious teachers, never did they dispute on the nature of the Old Testament canon. Both groups, Jesus and his disciples on the one hand, and the Pharisees and their disciples on the other, who disagreed on almost everything, never disagreed on the exact nature of Scripture. Consider Jesus' words to the Sadducees recorded in Matthew 22, verse 29. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures, he says, nor the power of God. Now, when Jesus used the word Scriptures, he was referring to the same 39 books that both he and the Sadducees regarded as the Scripture. The point I'm making is simple. The Old Testament is not the product of committees endless editing and re-editing of texts, and then finally calling a meeting to decide which books get in and which ones must be kept out. Rather, these books come through the words of prophets who had been attested by God as genuine prophets. They saw the mighty works of God and they testified to what they had seen. Now, of course, that still leaves us with the New Testament, and that's what we're going to talk about as we come back, because the New Testament also comes with the same authority as is ours in the Old Testament. In the secular culture we live in today, we hear so many supposed arguments from people who try to deny the Bible's truth and validity. This introduction helps us understand how and why we can value the Old Testament and its authenticity. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will demonstrate how we can also trust the New Testament as an objective standard of God's truth. As we celebrate three years of ministry partnership with Back to the Bible India, we are blessed to report the Bible teacher program with Dr. John Neufeld is being heard across India and throughout much of Asia including the Middle East and China. We're also excited to announce that we're continuing our pastor's Bible teaching conferences with this year's conferences taking place in Delhi and Hyderabad in June of 2019, providing training in expositional Bible teaching and encouragement to Indian pastors. Your prayers and support make both the Bible teaching program and the pastor's conferences possible. So this month, would you consider your support for these initiatives with an international ministry gift? For this international campaign, we're pleased to let you know that any gift today of any amount will be matched up to $25,000. Here is your chance to double what your gift can do around the world. 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. Some of us have the mistaken notion that a prophet might have spoken because of some insight that he had, and then he wrote it down. But in fact, prophets never initiated their work. Prophets spoke in response to what God had done. First God acted, then the prophet spoke. You might witness the action of God, but you wouldn't know what that action means until a prophet speaking on behalf of God tells you what the event actually means. So, for instance, you might have stood on the shores of the Red Sea and watched it part, but it took a prophet to tell you what God was up to when the event actually happened. So, first God acted, then prophets are called to explain what God has done. Now, nowhere is that more clear than in the ministry of Jesus. First came the advent of Jesus, then came the prophets who told us what his life, death, and resurrection actually means. But, of course, Jesus knew what his life, death, and resurrection meant. And he was determined to make it abundantly clear by himself appointing prophets to explain it. So, according to John 14, 26, Jesus told his disciples, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, he repeats a very similar saying in John 16, 13 to 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So often we've misunderstood these words and apply them to everyone, but these words were said specifically to Jesus' chosen disciples and form our basis of confidence in the Bible. Jesus promised his disciples a prophetic gift so that when they actually wrote about him, the Holy Spirit would enable them to accurately write exactly what he had said. Now, by the time we come to the book of Acts, the apostles are clearly taking a leadership role, a role entrusted to no one else. As Acts opens, Luke, the author, sets the stage for that which is to follow. He writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Clearly, the direction for the church included the commands to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was given, and this was entrusted to the apostles. They are the primary leaders of the church. So let's notice five things about the apostles. First of all, they were directly appointed by Jesus. Secondly, they personally witnessed all that Jesus did. Thirdly, they were called to be with him, that is, to be trained directly by Jesus himself. Fourthly, they were given a unique authority to preach and to drive out demons. And fifthly, there were only 12 of them, that is, not anyone could join their group. Now, as we know, Judas was removed from the group and was replaced by a man named Matthias. But that leads us to a conundrum. If these were the men Jesus chose to use as prophets, then why is it that the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, Acts, Hebrews, James, and Jude, six of the 27 books, indeed Paul, who wrote 13 of the New Testament books, was also not among the 12? If Jesus chose 12 to make himself known, who are the rest of these guys? Well, let's take it one step at a time. 
Paul is added to the group of 12, bringing their number to 13. According to Paul's own testimony given in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8, he calls himself one who is untimely born. Clearly, there's something unique about Paul's claim to be an apostle. Indeed, given the five criteria we have mentioned, how can he be called an apostle at all? Well, let's begin with Paul's own testimony. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, he's referring to his encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. It also seems likely that there are other encounters with Jesus later. Listen again to his own testimony in Galatians 1 verses 11 to 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If Paul is telling us the truth, then he does meet the criteria of an apostle. Remember, number one, he was directly appointed by Jesus. Number three, he was directly trained by Jesus over a period of years. Jesus appeared to him directly in order to train him. And four, he, like the others, was given authority to preach and drive out demons and perform other miracles to authenticate his calling. Even though he did not witness all that Jesus did and he was not among the twelve, Every witness we have indicates that the Twelve were indeed convinced that Paul's testimony about himself is true. So much so that Peter, the leader of the apostolic group, would say of Paul, well, let's let Peter speak for himself in 2 Peter 3, 15-16. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do, says Peter, the other scriptures. I hope you notice that. Peter calls the writings of Paul scripture because he affirms that Christ did appear to him and gave him a one-time unique gift to join the others who were apostles. Well, okay, but what about the book of Mark? He wasn't an apostle, true, but Mark wrote his book under the direct supervision of Peter. And what about the book of Luke? Well, again, Luke worked closely with Paul and was under his authority. The same can be said of others. That will include James and Jude. And so it should not be difficult for us to see that the situation of the forming of the New Testament canon is not so unlike the formation of the Old Testament canon. Only recognized spokesmen of God wrote scripture. The process was not up to a democratic vote or that a bunch of people met in closed doors and later decided which books were in and which books were out. But in the case of the New Testament, because Christian churches were scattered and all the books were not immediately available at the beginning, it took some time to recognize these works, but they were recognized for what they were given through the prophetic utterance of the spokesman that Christ himself had appointed and ordained. No one else wrote scripture. Consider a very important little verse that comes to us in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18. There Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. See, in order to justify the treatment of elders, Paul says, I'm quoting scripture. 
And then he quotes two scriptures, the first from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, from Moses, and then second from Luke 10, verse 7, written by Luke. I hope you see how quickly the New Testament was accepted. It was hardly written, and already it was accepted as scripture. And what about the so-called Gospel of Judas and, and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene? Well, the answer to those is simple. First, they weren't written by Judas or Thomas or Mary Magdalene in the first place. They're actually frauds from the beginning. That has been established by excellent scholarship. And second, these books were written hundreds of years later, and the authors of these books weren't among the men whom Jesus had chosen. That's why they were never accepted. The only books that make up our canon are the books that were written by the spokesmen God had actually appointed. So can you take up your Bible made up of 66 separate books from various authors over 1,500 years and say that these 66 books are the standard? These are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit, just these 66 books and no more. Well, yes, we can. God has left us with a clear testimony so that we can say with confidence that the 66 books that make up our Bible are the only ones that should be included. How wonderful to know that we can say with absolute confidence that this book, the Bible, is the Word of God, and that to add or detract from these 66 books is a sin against God. John, this is becoming a more and more critical issue all the time as we see uh, media uh, always wanting to project their feelings upon who the Bible is, who Jesus is, and we see so-called scholars speaking into it and the, and the inerrancy of God's Word. Why is this so critical for us today as Christians? Well, I'd say two Latin words, and the words are sola scriptura. Scriptures alone, our entire faith is premised on the authority and accuracy of the Word of God. Uh, with all these questions about whether or not the 66 books that make up our Bible should be there, uh, sometimes challenges to authorship and all of these kind of questions, they erode at the very basis upon which our faith stands. So I think that we need to go back to the Bible and say, are these books in fact given by God? And the answer is, resoundingly, yes, they are. We can trust them, and there are reasons for doing so, and we encourage Christians to know those reasons. As we've looked at how these 66 books came together to form the Bible, this has been a very helpful and informative study. When we consider the organic nature of this process, we're able to better defend the true origins of the Old and New Testaments. The canon of Scripture was not subjectively chosen by a group of men with power and authority. Rather, all of these books and what they contain directly represents the very words of God. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for our final message of the week as we look at why the Bible is a closed book with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. A new issue of Truth In Life magazine is now available, focusing on missions and the international response of Back to the Bible Canada. Truth In Life magazine is available free six times a year, featuring solid Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, encouragement from author and humorist Phil Calloway, plus a variety of engaging and insightful Bible-based articles. You'll also receive an inside look at all of our ministry activities, events, and more. 
Don't forget to take advantage of this month's International Match Campaign in support of Back to the Bible Canada's partnership in India and the launch of daily Bible teaching programs into multiple languages. The Match Campaign means your gift will be doubled up to $25,000. Call today for Truth and Life magazine and give towards the International Ministries Match Campaign at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.